reason that um, I want to share a little bit of our journey is because the passage we're going to read has, has been a great source of comfort and encouragement to me in the last two and a half years. And I'm using this as an introductory message to a three-part series I'm doing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This will begin today, next Sunday, then of course culminate on Easter Sunday. Now we have a cross-centered faith. Rightly so. We see books that talk about the cross-centered life. We talk about what happened on the cross. And we should. Indeed, Jesus died bearing our sins and enduring the wrath of God. But hear me when I say this. The cross alone is not enough for our salvation. Now, lest you think I've done gone heretical on you, let me explain. Without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the cross wouldn't have accomplished anything. Paul himself said that in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, then Jesus is still dead and you are still in your sins. It must be the cross and the resurrection. Both together. Not one without the other. In fact, when you do a survey through the New Testament, you will see that it was the resurrection that took primary focus in the proclamation of the apostles. For example, in Romans 4.25, Paul said that Jesus was delivered over for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Without the resurrection, we aren't justified. At Pentecost, Peter concludes his sermon by saying this, King David is still dead and buried in his tomb. But God did not leave Jesus to decay or abandon him to Hades. Jesus rose from the dead. In Acts 4, the religious leaders are annoyed with the disciples. Why? Because the disciples are preaching Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. At the Areopagus in Acts 17, the philosophers are puzzled because Paul is preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Romans, Paul wrote that the, in the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. And as I've already said in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile. The resurrection is the linchpin of our faith. If you remove the resurrection, our faith falls apart. Usually what happens though is that when we focus on the resurrection we either focus either on what happened then and we think in terms only of apologetics of proving that he rose from the dead. So our focus is then what happened over 2,000 years ago or we look to the future as the resurrection of the Jesus as our guarantee of the resurrection that will come. Both of those are true. But look at what's missing. We've got past and we've got future, but where is the present? How does the resurrection of Jesus change how you approach life today? How does the resurrection of Jesus change your attitude towards suffering? How does the resurrection of Jesus impact you as you interact with others? And in these next three weeks, that's what I want us to explore. Not just looking to defend the resurrection. Not just looking to the promise of the glorious resurrection that is to come. But to ask the question, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make today? And that's why I want to start in this passage that has ministered to me 
more than I could explain. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 1, verses 3 through 11 divides into two parts. It's two paragraphs. In the first paragraph, verses 3 through 7, Paul lays down the foundation to understand suffering. He doesn't attempt to explain the specific reason for all suffering we endure, but he lays a theological foundation to say there is a purpose in it, and that purpose helps you know God more. The second part is the practical application of that theology, verses 8 through 11. So he lays the foundation. He says, this is who God is and what God is doing. And this is how you live based upon that. Theology is never meant to be just dry and dusty. It's meant to impact how you and I live each and every day. In fact, we live out our theology. So that's why Paul doesn't leave these, this, this truth of God just for us to figure out what it means. He gives an example. So let's read this passage. Follow with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Notice the beginning point of this letter in verse 3 is a word of praise. When Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that word blessed be is a way of saying, I praise God. This is a doxology. It's words of praise. Now, like most doxologies in the scripture, it's a word of praise, but it's not left hanging by itself. Whether it be in the Psalms or in this epistle, the word of praise is always followed by the reason we praise God. We praise Him because. So we see as we dive into this that there are true, two truths of God that emerge. He is God and He is Father. Now notice God focuses upon the power, the sovereignty. Father focuses upon the relational love. Keep both of those in mind. Our God is not just the God of power that is far removed. He is the loving Father who is intimately involved in our lives. And He is not just the loving Father who is intimately involved in our lives. He is the sovereign God over all creation. And notice how they culminate in Jesus Christ. So he speaks in terms of relationally praising God, but now He takes it a step further in verse 3. He is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
So this becomes the reason that we praise God. We receive mercies and comfort from Him. Mercy and comfort flow from God like rivers flow from the tops of mountains. Mercy is the compassion of God. His sympathy toward us as we suffer and as we hurt. Paul begins by praising God because God is tender in His mercy. He is not hard-hearted. I love the description given in Isaiah where Isaiah says, Our God will not break the reed that is already bent. He will not extinguish the wick that is smoldering. Our God is merciful. He's merciful towards you. And that mercy goes hand in hand with the comfort that he gives. He is the God of all comfort. Now it's important that we take a moment to define comfort. When we think of comfort, it's ease that comes to mind. It's a Sunday afternoon kicked back in the recliner with golf on the TV as you doze off. And don't do it now. As you reflect and think, it's peace. That's our idea of comfort. Ease of life, cushy. But that's not the biblical notion of comfort. It's interesting to me that the Latin word comfort has at its root the idea of fortify. You see, biblically, the idea of comfort means to give courage to. It means to strengthen. It means to help someone remain firm in their resolve. That is comfort. It's a way of saying, don't give up. I found it very interesting as I was listening to sports radio this week leading up to the Final Four that a commentator was asked the question, out of all the coaches in the Final Four, which, do you think, which coach do you think has the advantage? The commentator paused for a moment. And he said, I really don't think when you get to X's and O's, one coach has an advantage over the other. But, he said, I think Michigan State has to take a lot of comfort. Now, that caught my ears. He said these words, a lot of comfort in the fact that Coach Izzo has been there several times before. Now, it didn't help them last night, granted. But what was he saying? He wasn't saying that the team's just going to kick back and relax and lounge around because Coach Izzo has been there. No, the idea of comfort was their resolve to play as hard as they can is going to be fortified because their coach has been there before. That's the idea of comfort. Not to be afraid, to be reminded that your courage is not in vain, to be reminded that your resolve to follow Christ should stay strong and it's very interesting to me that as you look in verse 3, notice it is the father of mercies. It's plural. He is the God of all comfort. Not just one situation, not just one circumstance, but whatever the situation, God has mercy for it. Whatever the circumstance, God has comfort for it. There is never anything that you and I will face with which God will not supply the mercy and comfort we need to serve Him in the midst of it. Mercies, all comfort. A few weeks ago, Samuel and I set in to what should have been an easy repair I always find it's supposed to be an easy repair. We were simply replacing a burned out light bulb, a burned out headlight in his car. You watch it, you read the instructions, no more than 30 minutes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Couldn't find a bolt to fit the, the nut to turn it. Went through every one I had. Begin growing. Why is it, why is it metric? Why is it metric? We're Americans. 
what, what, what's going on? And I, I really went through everything I had in my little toolbox, which is not vast. But then it dawned on me as I was in the garage pondering, <laughs> what am I going to do? Which is code word for kicking things. <laughs> and I saw my dad's toolbox. See, when my dad passed away in 2012, as we were going through stuff, I brought his toolboxes up to my house. Notice I said toolboxes. So I opened those up. And guess what? My dad had exactly what I needed to complete the job. That's a picture of my Heavenly Father. I looked at Samuel and I said, isn't it amazing? Your granddad's been dad, dead for seven years, but he's still supplying what we need. Our Heavenly Father does that. Whatever the circumstance you have, God can supply the comfort and mercy you need. If you're grieving, our God knows grief and he knows how to comfort. If you felt betrayed, he's been betrayed. He can come alongside you and give strength and comfort. Disappointed, God understands. Wounded by the actions of others, God has mercy for you. He supplies what we need. But now notice, we are not the end of the story. Because in verse 4, it takes a turn. God comforts us in all of our affliction. But notice in verse 4, so that. You see, it's not just about what we receive for God. That's not the end of God's work. God gives comfort and mercy to us so that we can share it with others. Here's the pattern. God gives mercy and comfort to Paul. Paul then shares and gives mercy and comfort to the churches. And the pattern is still operative today. Churches, God gives you mercy and strength and comfort. Guess what? You are to share that with one another so that others can experience the comfort and the mercy of God. Verse 5 reminds us of the abundance of God's comfort and mercy. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. Notice the word abundantly. Wherever there's abundant suffering, there's abundant mercy. Wherever there's abundant pain, there is abundant comfort. It's almost like there are two ledgers. One ledger lists the pain and the sufferings of life. The other ledger lists the comfort and the mercies of God. And guess what? This ledger of pain and suffering will never exhaust the ledger of God's mercy and comfort. He says, therefore, in verses 6 and 7, since we are afflicted, it's for your comfort. And our hope is that you'll not be shaken, for we know that you will share in our sufferings as you share in our comfort. You see, we are not to become self-centered in our pain and in the comfort that we receive, but we are to be other-centered in the midst of it. Because that is how the comfort and the mercy of God is experienced. I think sometimes we think of the mercy and the comfort of God, but we separate it from the body of Christ. Now, there are times where in the midst of our pain, we pray. And we're in that moment alone with God, and we will feel a wave of peace and comfort. I don't doubt that I've experienced that. However, what I have found in the last two and a half years is that I experience the comfort and the mercy of God through other believers. 
at times when my emotions were raked thin and my feelings were numb, it has been through the people of God that I have experienced the mercy and the comfort of God. That, I believe, is God's pattern. For are we not the body of Christ so that if we think of God wrapping his arms around us, would it not be through his body? On November 23rd of 2016 is the night where things went from bad to absolutely worse for us. Emma had been in a coma for three days at this point. And we'd made the decision to transport her to Knoxville. The decision was made originally we were going to fly her by an aircraft going out of the Tri-Cities airport. She needed to get there immediately. The other option was a helicopter. So I left to go get some clothes at home that we would need to get back to go with them to the airport. When I turned the corner to come onto the hallway where the ICU is located, there were members of this congregation and other friends there praying. I was told that Emma's condition had even gotten worse. That the doctors thought it was no longer safe for her to even fly, period. And so we were going to make a decision about whether to move her or to stay there. The truth is they thought Emma was going to die that night. I remember walking into one of the rooms, one of the waiting rooms... And I had seen this happen, you know, in movies. And you think, oh, that will never happen to me. My knees gave way. Now, I'm a fairly large person. I'm 6'3", 200 and something pounds. People caught me. They caught me. And what they did physically at that moment was simply a picture of what was happening spiritually. As the body of Christ was holding us up, God was giving us comfort and mercy through his people. It continued. That night, members of this congregation and friends that said, Jody's riding an ambulance, Mark, we'll drive you and Samuel and Ellen. And then another person said, Mark, I'll drive your car so you'll have something down there. The next day was Thanksgiving. Now here we are. You know, we're at the neurointensive care unit at UT. My daughter's in a coma. The doctors are doing everything they can, but we still don't know what's happening. It's Thanksgiving Day. The nurses that worked there were telling us, now just hang around, there will be food provided this night by a family. Later that day, we met Barry and his family. For five years, Barry and his family would bring Thanksgiving dinner to the neurointensive care unit for the families that were waiting. He did this because five years prior to that, his daughter had been in a car wreck and had been in a coma in the neurointensive care unit over Thanksgiving. So Barry and his family, every Thanksgiving, would provide a meal to share the comfort and the mercy they had been given. We sat down and we talked with Barry because here was a man that could look and say, I have been exactly where you are. And the interesting thing is we began to develop a friendship. Barry would come back and visit us. And one day his wife came and she was talking with Jody. And she said, Jody, you don't know how amazing that is because 
The only time Barry ever goes to a hospital now is on Thanksgiving Day. Otherwise, he doesn't go because it's too painful. And the fact he's coming now to sit with your husband, that means God's doing a work. I can't tell you the number of times that we were in Knoxville and Bristol and even now that members of this congregation showed up and just simply cried with us. That is God giving comfort through his people. Because I will tell you, not every time Jody and I ended up in a chapel at 3 in the morning pleading for our daughter's life, there wasn't every time we got up singing peaceful, easy feeling. But whenever there were believers there that could come, and sometimes they didn't have to say anything. You see, sometimes we wonder, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Show up and just say, I love you. A friend of mine showed up when we were in the ICU, and he said, Mark, I just want you to know I'm here. I'm going to sit down right over there. I'm here. If you need me, let me know. Otherwise, just do your thing, but just know I'm here. If I ever write a book on this, I'm going to entitle a chapter. Just know I'm here, but do your thing. Because there was a comfort in that. That's how God shows his comfort. And that is why Satan works to keep you from experiencing the comfort and the mercy of God. Satan doesn't want you to know God in that way. Satan wants you to dwell in your pain, in your grief, in your bitterness, thinking nobody knows, nobody cares. So Satan works to do two things. One thing Satan does is this. He works to stop you from opening up your life to other people. He doesn't want you to know the love of God, so he works to isolate you. And he convinces you to stay isolated in your pain. Because if you open up, what will people think? And it's a pride issue. I want them to think I'm in control. Let me tell you, the sooner you realize you are not in control and you don't have the strength in your own self to deal with your problems, the happier you will be and the more you will know the comfort and the mercy of God. You see, when we don't open up our lives to others, it's like a plant that doesn't receive sunshine. The soul that is encased that never experiences the love of God in a body of believers will soon wither and die. Satan will work to keep you from opening your experience and your pain to others. The other thing Satan will do is this. He will convince you to be angry at God. You and I have both met people that are mad at God because they feel like life has been unfair to them. Well, guess what? Life is unfair. And it's funny how we play the game, isn't it? When something bad happens, we will cry out, that's not fair. But when we receive blessings, we don't shout out, God, that's not fair. We can't have it both ways. You see, if Satan can get you to be angry at God and bring you to stop reading your Bible, to stop praying, to stop opening up, he has isolated you from the source of comfort and mercy. That's like not eating and wondering why you're starving. So Satan wants you to be mad at God. He wants you to be mad at the only source of comfort and mercy that can ease the wounds of your soul. Anger at God does not help, nor does isolation. That's why Paul gives us the experience. He speaks from his own life. You see, sometimes I think we get this image of Paul. He's Superman. Paul never had troubles. But look what happens in verses 8 through 11 as he shares his experience. 
He says, we experienced some affliction in Asia. And this affliction was so bad, we were burdened beyond our strength. In other words, we didn't have the strength to deal with it. He goes on to say, we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. Paul thought he was going to die. Now it's very interesting that he never describes exactly what the affliction was. Was it being beaten and imprisoned? Possibly. Was it being whipped and stoned? Possibly. Was it the emotional pain of caring for the church? Maybe. We aren't told. And I think the reason is, that way you and I can place ourselves in the story. We can say we have been afflicted beyond what we can bear. And our pain can at times make us feel like we want to die. The grief of a miscarriage. The pain of divorce. The anxiety of losing a job. The uncertainty of a diagnosis. All those things make us feel like the night will never lift. Paul says that there was a reason behind this. Verse 9. That was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. You have a choice as to where you will look for the comfort and the mercy. And the myth that is often perpetuated is that you have the internal resources on your own to deal with it. And the truth is we don't. Not a one of us. There are things we face in life that are more than we can handle. But Paul says these things happen to teach us that we don't have to have the strength on our own. It's okay to say, I'm weak and I can't handle it. Why? Because we serve a God who does what? Who raises the dead. Now we come to the resurrection. Notice the qualifications that Paul gives for not relying on ourselves but relying on God. How can, I know I, how can I know I can trust God? Because God raises the dead. Now I want you to think about everything that Paul could have put in to describe God. He said this was to cause us to trust God who creates something out of nothing. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? But no, that's not where Paul goes. He could have said, so that we will trust God who delivers his people from Egypt through the Red Sea and supplies what they need. But that's not what Paul says. He could have said, we trust the God who causes walls to fall down and fish to swallow people. But that's not where he goes. Instead, he says, we will trust God who does what? Who raises the dead. Because if there is one thing we have no power over, it is death. If there is one thing that mocks us as irreversible, it is death. If there is one thing that seems to be unconquerable, it is death. So we rely upon one who has power over death, one who reverses death, one who conquers death, one who reminds us that no matter how long the night may seem, the dawn will come and with it is the power of God that raises the dead and will sustain you, church. That's the God we trust. That's why daily we need to be reminded who God is that we serve. That our circumstances are not hopeless. The night may last. In no way am I claiming an easy believism because there will be hard times in life. If you have not experienced them, you will. But we cling on to hope and comfort and mercy through God's people who know the power of God in the resurrection. That's why Paul says, He delivered us from such peril, He will deliver us again. Our God is faithful and true and will see us through. On Him we have set our hope. Now at this point we expect Paul to go super apostle again, to stake his flag, to say we don't doubt what God will do. But look 
what he does next. You also must help us by prayer. God will deliver us, now you help us. You know what he's doing? He's putting into practice the theology he just taught about in verses 3 through 7. You pray for us, you help us, so the comfort and the mercy God has given you will spill over into us as our comfort and mercy spills over into you. Pray for one another, lift each other up, share your life. When Paul says to pray, it's not as if God has a quota. Sometimes I think when we share prayer requests, we have the idea, if I can get 50 people to pray, that's God's quota for today. 50 people, God will hear me and answer. The Bible says the prayer of one righteous man availeth much. You know why we share prayer requests? One is to share the comfort. But look at the reason Paul gives in this verse. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Many will give thanks. As we share our struggles and our burdens, our victories, and even our defeats, and we see God working, many people praise God. So as prayer requests multiply, what that means is opportunities for praise multiply to say, we prayed for this, God did this, glory be to his name. We were praying for this. God did this. Glory be to his name. So that praise should multiply and overthrow. Because when there is a praying congregation, you will find a praising congregation. For prayer and praise go hand in hand. So that many will give thanks to the blessings God granted through the prayers of many. We trust the God who raises the dead, but we don't trust him alone. What I mean by that is we trust him in community. So I ask you today, do you know the comfort and mercies of God? Have you experienced those? Not just as I said subjectively, but really engaged in the body. Yes, all of us could share stories where sadly we've been hurt. But that does not change the reality. The overwhelming reality. That we receive God's mercy and comfort through his people. Are you trusting the God who raises the dead? I want to ask you to bow your head with me, if you will.